Hi, welcome to the Stanford Graduate School of Business podcast. My name is Lily Clausen, and I'm going to be interviewing faculty here about their research and the stories behind their research. Maggie Neal is the Adams Distinguished Professor of Management here at the GSB, and she studies negotiation and team performance. I talked with her recently about why it's so hard to create and maintain diverse teams. Here's our conversation. A lot of your research has focused on negotiation, but I'm actually interested today in hearing more about your work on diversity and teams. How did you get interested in this area? One of my doctoral students said to me, if I study negotiations, my new colleagues will think I'm simply a clone of yours. So rather than studying negotiations, what I want to study is teams. And my response to him was, I don't know anything about teams. And he answered, we're both young, we can learn. So because I did want to work with him, he was a very bright student, and teams was an interesting content for me to do my research, I thought, okay. And so I began studying teams. And it turns out, of course, there's this natural relationship between how synergy is created. We talk about it in negotiation as creating value. We talk about it in teams as being innovative. So now I study innovative teams. And I'm particularly interested in how teams innovate um, because I think it leads to some really some good insights into how we can create and manage teams to really maximize the amount of innovation that we can achieve from those teams. And why is creating um, and sort of cultivating a diverse team so important? Well, if there's any place that diversity works its magic, it's when we're trying to be innovative or creative. Because what we know is that when teams are diverse, people become more innovative. Why? Because they're faced with differences, with, with people who have different views of the world, different perspectives on the world. And if our team is to come to a solution, we must find a way to be able to integrate those unique perspectives and differential experiences. And it is through that pressure to bring together these disparate perspectives that we find the opportunity to innovate and to create. I'm hoping you can talk about some of the barriers to diversity. I know you've talked about things like unconscious bias and organizational systems that are in place. Can you share a little bit more about what you think is blocking us from having these diverse teams that would make us more effective? Well, I think what's important to understand is that Um, Oftentimes we find ourselves in situations where we try to privilege comfort or predictability over the quality of the outcome. And what that does is that leads us to be more attracted to people who are like us. Because not only are, are we more comfortable with people who are like us, what they are likely to, how they're likely to behave is gonna be more predictable. So it feels more comfortable. The challenge we face is when we've got people on a team who come from very different backgrounds, who have very different training, who have very different life experiences. This is an uncomfortable experience. And so what happens is, is that when we find ourselves in situations where there is diverse perspective among team members, a couple of things happen. Number one, we expect more conflict. In teams that are diverse, we expect more conflict. Well, what does that do? Well, when we expect more conflict, it turns out we can handle more conflict. Because the biggest problem we face is when we think everybody thinks alike and like us, and then they don't. 
and we're kind of blindsided by that. But when we walk into a team of diverse others, we expect there to be differences. So number one, we, can, we expect more conflict, therefore we're, we're prepared to manage that conflict better. But number two, what happens is when we expect more conflict, the mere presence of diversity results in our being better prepared in those meetings. So we have more elaboration and more preparation in advance of that meeting because we realize there's going to be conflict. And number three, what happens is as we prepare more elaborately, we actually bring more information to the team. And I think that is an absolutely critical component of this because not only do I just work harder to, to think about what my perspective is, I actually broaden the information that I'm willing to bring to the team to try to help in advance to find potential solutions to the challenges that we face. So if this, I mean, you've just outlined some of the reasons why this is the way we should be doing things. Um, why aren't we doing it that way? What are what's blocking us in institutions or culturally from from getting to this place? Well, there are a lot of things that block us. One of them is we prefer comfort. <laughs> we prefer things that are easy. And so we tend to look to others who are like us because we know those social situations are going to be the most predictable and most manageable. But there are a lot of things that also block us um, from being able to realize the diversity that we need even when our organizations absolutely critically demand diversity. And the first thing is, is that we may think that there just simply aren't enough qualified people who fit whatever diverse characteristic we're thinking about. So let's make it easy on ourselves. Let's talk about women, right? So women make up uh, the majority of the population. And yet, if you look at organizations, Silicon Valley being an obvious example, we find, we find a, a, a shortage of women in managerial and leadership positions in Silicon Valley whose most of those organizations the task is to be as innovative as possible right so you'd think if there's ever going to be a place where diversity sees its most its biggest benefit it will be there with an organization who requires innovation right so we say well there's not enough qualified women well actually if you look back since about 1988 more women than men have graduated from college and since about 2010, the majority of PhDs and master's degrees have been given to women. So the question is, is it that there are not qualified women or we're not looking for the qualified women? Rather, we're looking for people who are just like the people who are already in the jobs. And for the most part, those are men. Now, maybe it is unconscious bias. Maybe we have enough women out there, but we don't see them as being the right fit for our organization. And one of the best studies that I think to demonstrate that is the study with the symphonies and the curtain. And uh, Golden and Rouse did this study. And what they did is they got symphony orchestras, real symphony orchestras, to um, when they're doing interviews for potential new members of the orchestra, to have the auditions occur behind a curtain. Well, it turns out that once those auditions occurred behind a curtain, it increased the likelihood by 60% that a woman would advance in the audition process and increased by 250% the possibility that she would actually get a seat in that orchestra. Now, what's astonishing about this is that if you think about most symphony orchestras, 
the gender of the musician should play absolutely no impact. Who cares about whether a woman is playing the violin or a man? What you care about is the quality of the music. And even in the situation where the output is the quality of the music and not who's playing it, in fact, oftentimes we don't even see the members of the symphony orchestra. They're in the pit, right? But yet, by simply putting up this curtain, we find that we dramatically affect the likelihood of women advancing in these kinds of positions. Now, you may find it hard to put a curtain up in your organization, but you can certainly create often technological curtains. So perhaps, as some organizations have done, is that when they're having people apply for jobs, they have them do it online and have them engage in tasks that are associated with the job that they are, do they are going to be doing, and then, an intermediary strips out all the demographic information so that we don't know who's a male or who's a female or what race the candidates are. And what you find out in those organizations is that once those cues of gender or race are removed, women are actually being hired at much higher rates. And so part of this is the notion of unconscious bias. That it's not that we're saying we don't want women, but we don't systematically see them as potential. We don't value their work in the same way or their performance as we value the work of men. A third reason may be that we have lots of women in the lower ranks. They just never seem to get promoted. And, you know, that's an interesting problem because it turns out that one of the challenges is, is that the research suggests that the criteria for evaluating performance is not consistent across genders. So researchers have done um, analyses of the, um, of the performance reviews of people, and they've looked at that by gender. And what they find are a couple of things that are really telling. Number one, what they find is that oftentimes men will be given feedback about objective business characteristics. That is, how has their performance affected a particular outcome that is valuable for the organization? Women are often evaluated by their personality. In fact, in a study of four organizations here in Silicon Valley, what they found was 75% um, of the people who were, who were counseled that they were too aggressive in these four organizations were women. Seriously? You think that three-quarters of the aggressive, the two aggressive individuals in an organization are going to be women? Or perhaps we have a different metric for what is aggression when we see it in men and what is aggression when we see it in women. So also what happens too is as we think about hiring and promoting, we have in our mind's eye what the appropriate candidate would look like. And without having a clear and stated set of criteria for why we hire or why we promote, we may find ourselves figuring out, hey, the guy looks better, and now rationalizing on what dimensions that person looks better after the fact, rather than saying, here's our criteria, who meets the criteria? Right, and when there's no criteria, organizations tend to rely on this concept of meritocracy. And this 
seems to be a big conundrum. How could I, as a member of an organization who truly values meritocracy and performance, be more biased than an organization who doesn't put so much emphasis on that? And it turns out there are a series of studies that when folks are in organizations where there is a strong uh, emphasis on meritocracy, it turns out it makes it easier for them to discriminate. Why? Well, obviously, I've already committed to meritocracy and a data-driven decision by being in this organization. And maybe I've even acknowledged that, that this is really important to us. So having acknowledged that, I now fall prey to what we call moral licensing. What's moral licensing? Well, it's sort of like, you know what? I'm going to get the cheeseburger and the fries because I worked out this morning. Working out this morning licenses me to behave badly because I've already behaved well. Okay, so I worked really hard to get into this position, so I'm going to do it at what gets me ahead instead of my report. A little bit, but more like what I'm going to... I'm in this organization who cares a lot about... Um, the importance of meritocracy and doing a really good job. So because this organization so tightly adheres to that cultural norm, we're already, we already believe that we're already there. So any decision we make is obviously meritocratic. And so researchers have found that people who are in that situation actually discriminate more against women and people of color. And so it makes it a lot more difficult. Some of your newer research shows that when there's more diversity along one dimension, um, say gender or ethnicity or age or ability or skill, um, people perceive that there's actually more diversity in another dimension, even when that might not be the case. You call it spillover bias. Can you unpack that for us? So we we discovered uh, an inconsistency, and the inconsistency was we have a lot of theory about how... um, diversity should have an impact. And what we find is is that the research sometimes supports that and sometimes doesn't. So we have paradoxical findings. What we assumed was that we actually, when we see a diverse group, that we actually have a veridical representation in our mind of whether that group is diverse or not. So that, that, that the actual diversity of the group should match our perception of diversity. But why should that be the case? There's so many things that where the the reality does not match our perceptions of reality. So why not this? So my co-authors, um, David Daniel, who's a doctoral student, and uh, Lindy Greer, um, and I did a series of studies where what we looked at was we had uh, diversity on one dimension, and we varied that, and we looked at how that affected the perceptions of diversity on another dimension, which we kept constant. So what we did was we said, okay, how gender diverse was this group? And what we did was we varied the diversity of another dimension, and maybe sometimes that was ethnicity. Sometimes it was color of t-shirt, or sometimes it was the diversity of programming skills. And it turns out that the more diverse you were on any of those dimensions, ethnicity, programming skills, or shirt color, the more diverse in gender the participants thought their team was. Even though we kept gender at 50-50, right, half-half, people overestimated when they had teams that had a lot of shirt colors. And these were interacting teams. They spent over 20 minutes interacting with each other. 
And we said, well, how diverse was your team in terms of gender? And they actually thought their team was more diverse when they had lots of shirt colors than when they had, a, when all everybody wore the same color shirt. It's so remarkable. Why in the world would people think that? Because we have a sense of what a diverse team is. And what happens is if they're diverse on a, one dimension, we actually just generalize. They must be diverse on another. And what's interesting is this gets worse the more the, more the variety is. So if they're very diverse on one dimension and not very diverse on the other, we raise up that dimension they're not very diverse on. So what happens is if, if we have um, all one shirt color, people don't think we're as diverse in gender. But if we have lots of shirt colors, people raise the perception. So it's almost as if we have this mindset, this is what a diverse team is. A diverse team that's diverse in one is diverse in all. This spillover bias, as you call it, could very well be responsible for why we have just sort of these, this stagnation um, in diversity in teams, right? Well, it could certainly be a contributor to it because people may think their teams are more diverse. And for example, a lot of organizations in the Valley have a lot of racial diversity if we limit the races to Asian and, and, and European, right? And so they must think, well, given that we have that and we have a, we have a few people who are African-American, we have some Hispanics, so we're actually probably pretty diverse in women. And maybe you're not, right? But the question, here's the problem. You know, a manager, especially as you think about sort of how do you manage this notion of innovation versus implementation, you have very different um, compositions of teams that will benefit one versus the other of these goals. And if you are, if you basically are in error in how diverse your team is, then you begin to see that you can make, you can make errors in figuring out how much diversity do I need in this particular team. I think I may have more or less diversity than I in fact do. And so it's that problem. And by the way, what we find amazing is this is this works when you're just showing people pictures of teams. It also works when those teams are interacting and they've actually solved a problem together that took them, you know, the better part of half an hour. And it still is strong. We have in our minds what diversity looks like. What would diversity look like to you? Well, this is this is a real challenge because you see diversity is a, is a characteristic of a team. There's no one individual who's ever diverse. You know, as an individual, there's no diversity, right? It's a, it's a function of a team. But a team may have different dimensions of diversity that are more or less salient to that team. For example, one of the, one of the um, uh, things that I often refer to is, think about academic faculty, right? If you have a group of faculty together, then we kind of see each other in terms of being in organizational behavior or finance or econ or marketing. We see all these different fault lines. But once you put us into a group where there are alumni, all of a sudden the faculty is homogeneous. It's faculty. And then the other component of that diversity is, are you a faculty or are you an alumni, right? So what happens is this divert, the notion of diversity is really not something that we can say is this team is diverse, this team is not diverse, because diversity is a characteristic of what's important to the team and what the team often, often sees as diverse. Maybe with a group of engineers, it could be whether you're an electrical engineer, whether you're a computer uh, engineer, whether you're a mechanical engineer, whether you're a civil engineer. Those are all sorts of very diverse team components, which may you know, out from the outside, y'all look like engineers. But inside, when you're in the team, that may be a huge source of, of difference. 
So what advice would you give um, to leaders to make their teams more diverse? Well, you need to have a set of criteria that you have decided upon in advance of seeing who the candidates are. Right? What are the criteria that, will, that you need for this team? I think what's also important is that you need to understand that as teams become more diverse, their expectation is they'll have more conflict. This is, managing conflict is a skill that teams that innovate absolutely need to develop. One of my colleagues and co-authors, Kathy Phillips from Columbia, uses a great analogy. She says, you know, when you go to the gym and you work out, it's not easy. You know, if you're working out well, it's hard, it's painful but you do it because you're gonna be better. This is how I want you to think about diversity. I want you to think about diversity like you would going to the gym. Yeah, you know, it's not the most fun thing you do, but it makes you better. And it makes your organization better, it makes your team better, especially if you have to innovate. And so sometimes the gain, it's worth the pain. Great, thank you so much.